pleased to be joined by former British number one Davis Cup player, former coach, and now TV commentator. There's a lot of hats that you play. Mark Petchy. Thank Only you one for that's joining. current, though. A lot, a lot of former <laughs> nexus. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. You're a busy guy, um, so I appreciate you taking getting the sacked time. a lot. Oh, come on. Um, no, but I was I was uh, listening to a lot of podcasts that you've been on, and I was pretty intrigued. I'm going to start with a couple topics I think that I felt like jumped out to me, and one was your playing career. First yep. of all, very first of all, congrats on a very successful player, coach, now commentator. But your transition from juniors to pro, um, I noticed was very challenging, and I just didn't know if you could talk about those challenges a little bit and how you were able to overcome them. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think that for a long time, to be honest, Jill, I um, I didn't really realize kind of the effect that tennis had on me as a person. I, I, I think that when you when you come through a junior career, and I had a fairly successful one by UK standards, um, not just nationally, but sort of like internationally, um, you kind of head into the pro world thinking that everything's going to kind of continue on that path. And and obviously it didn't for me for for a while. Um, and you know there was obviously that period that I sort of broke into the top hundred and, and and got to eighty in the world and kind of gravitated in that kind of zone for a while. But I think that I I think my expectations were a lot higher um, going into tennis. And I think that um, personally, and I can only talk about it personally. It's my sort of my journey. I didn't feel like I met the expectations that I wanted for myself I think that any tennis player that goes into playing kind of feels like they can win a major whether that's Wimbledon obviously I'm U- I'm UK based or whether that's the French you know and were those your expectations to win a major yeah absolutely yeah. I, I, I don't I'll be surprised if there's right. many tennis players that don't sort of start the journey thinking that there's a possibility of that happening um, and I and I guess I found that very difficult personally without really understanding I was finding that difficult personally I suppose in one way when you break the top 100 in the UK it was kind of a big deal we don't have that many players that do it on the men's side Um, and then not being able to push forward from like 80 in the world I think I found that extremely difficult but yet I'm still playing tennis and I'm still trying to do things and I'm still trying to get there I think by the time I'd stopped I was in a pretty awkward place in my own mind that I hadn't really succeeded and I felt like pretty much to be honest I'd failed and so and so how do you like what are steps you you took because one I want to talk about your transition junior pro and obviously you said it was very challenging but also so many players struggle once they decide to finish their playing career to move on and obviously you didn't feel settled in that regard either how what steps did you take to overcome that to be honest, I, I, my wife was pregnant with my, our first child and I needed to find a new job. And, and really I had kind of what I saw were three options on the table at the, the time that I stopped. It was work for the Federation, um, go and work in a tennis club, pull a hopper out and start grinding the hours out or go into commentary. And I was fortunate enough to get given six weeks worth of work with Eurosport um, and back in the UK and I did, that's what I did. And in the end, that's exactly what I did. I went and did six weeks work but there wasn't enough work. And so I ended up coming into contact with an athletics management um, agency called Kim McDonald, who sadly passed away very early at 45 years old. And he ran his own athletics management company, but wanted to get into tennis. So through him, I 
ended up meeting Sylvia Talaya from Croatia, right. who I coached back in 99, 2000. Uh, while I was on tour with Sylvia, I met Tina Pisnik, who's now here in Chicago coaching. Um, and that's what I needed to do. And I also needed to do it for me, Jill, because I didn't really see myself as a successful tennis player. So I didn't think that my tennis career was strong enough personally to go into commentary booth and start telling people why somebody's not doing anything particularly well so I also felt I needed to go and do something that showed that on the other side of the fence as well that I could do um, and see the game from that perspective and and that was also a big driving force for me to go into coaching. Now, I mean, you keep saying a couple times that you didn't really feel like it was a successful career, but top 100 in the world for any athlete in, or in any category, whether it's business, athlete, whatever, is hugely successful. Are you able to look back on that and realize that you had that success? I think I'm a bit more, I think I'm probably kinder to myself now than I was yeah. obviously for 15 years after I stopped playing. I'm probably a little bit more proud of it now than I was for a, for a very long time, for a very long time. And, you know, everyone says, oh, you're self-deprecating and all of this. But to be honest, that's how I felt. That's, that's how I do feel. Um, the way it's written back in the UK and, and in general, most people feel like the top 100 isn't that big a deal. Um, so, again, that narrative is very strong in your own mind that it's not amazing that you've done that. And so, therefore, you kind of fall into the trap to also feeling that it's not that particularly great. Um and obviously there were people ahead of me in the UK like Tim and Greg and, and, and all of that. So you, you kind of also put yourself under that sort of microscope and say, well, wow, you know, they're successful. I'm not successful. No, that's what success looks like. This isn't what like success looks like. Like comparing to other, yeah. Yeah, and comparison is the, the thief of joy and, and it takes it away from you. And, and, I, and I did... And I, yeah, I did, I did struggle. I mean, there are still days when I struggle a little bit when I look back at it, but, but particularly really, even yeah. now, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think, I think the only thing, and I said it in one podcast, I think that I did while I was in quarantine in Australia, that the only thing that I feel like I've been successful at has been coaching. And I think that everybody I have coached has got better. I am, whether they've enjoyed the time with me, whether they want to say the same thing, but if you look at their ranking, if you look at shots, if you look at their game, yep. it, it, it's definitely improved and it's something that I'm super proud of and, and it is the one thing that if you ask me, do you think you've been successful at, it would be, yeah, I've been a successful coach, but the other stuff, I, I, I struggle a little bit with. So how would you have coached yourself back then to, uh, to help you deal with those challenges a, at the time? That's a great question. I don't think I've been asked that before. Um, certainly going from juniors to pro would have been the whole, it will take time. There will be bumps on the road. This will not be a smooth process. You you have to set realistic goals. You know, I, I felt like I was going to go from naught to top 50. And when it didn't happen in the first year, I was like, whoa, you know, I'm still 250 in the world. I'm still 300 in the world. I'm like, what's happened? This is, a, this is an utter failure. And I literally, I think it was the second year of my pro career, I took four weeks off at the end of the year and basically um, was going to stop. You know, and I talked to my father and said, you know, I need, I need to think about what I need to do here. And he said, yeah, absolutely, you do. And like, take the time, think about what you want to do. 
if you want to go back to college, that's still an option for you in the UK. And, and so that's what I did. I, I, I literally took four weeks off to decide. And at the end of the four weeks, I was like, you know what? I'm going to feel regret if I don't give this a go. Mm. I need to give this a go. So I picked my rackets up, went to Queens, drove from my home in England to the Queens Club, which is about an hour and a half one way, and, and went and practiced for a whole month, you know, every single day and forward and back. And, and by the end of it, I felt, okay, let's, I'm, I'm ready to give this a go again. Yeah. And it's interesting you brought up the fact the first thing you say is that it's going to take time because that's something that a lot of players I know express is that you know, they're all about the process, they're all about getting better slowly, but easier said than done. Completely. I would think. And I think you know those expectations obviously are still there. We see some players deal with them better than others. How, how for you as a successful coach would you get that point across to make sure they stay with that process? Again, another great question. Um, trust the process is very niche. It's very cliche. And it's also very unrelevant to a lot of players because if you don't have the money, mm. you can't trust the process right. because you're out the door. You cannot economically, you can't trust the process because you can't make enough money to trust the process. So it's all well and good throwing these nice little sort of, uh, you know, as I say, taglines, bumper stickers out there. But if you don't have the money, you, you can't trust the process. And so in one way, I was fortunate that I could obviously ride the kind of doldrums that I was in for two or three years before I managed to kind of obviously start making some money and, and get myself into the top 100. But but that is why I'm a big believer in U.S. college tennis, because I do think that that period for most players, 90 percent of players, is an incredibly tough time in their lives. They There are knockbacks there are setbacks there are matches that you've lost that will stay with you for the rest of your life there are matches that you were so desperate to win that you didn't win that is that's a suitcase of memories that you lug around with you um and i did and and i know that it's i think it would that's why i feel like going into a team environment in a college having 70 matches a year having those knocks in an environment where you can kind of go back and have other things like school and friends and everything else is just so much more healthy. Being on the road, losing first round, week in, week out, and having to pick yourself up, whether you've got a coach or no coach, is probably the most soul-destroying thing you'll do. And like I didn't, I didn't totally recover from it, even though I got better. So even even I mean, when you bring up college, which I think is a great point, do you feel like, because obviously it's changed from when you were younger to now, there's so much more online schooling, homeschooling, what other benefits besides being able to have all those matches do you feel like college provides? I think a safe environment, hopefully, as long as you get the right coach. I obviously am aware that there'll be people listening to this that have had horrendous coaching situations at college and would say, yeah, listen to me, Mark, this is this is terrible. Obviously, you know, Brittany with the NCAA situation, there's, there's, you know, there's obviously going to be negative situations in college. But for me personally, having got two girls over here at SMU in Oregon and having been a part of this sort of scene inside the system, um, if you can find yourself in a great environment, I just feel like the teammates, the matches that you play, it doesn't feel as personal and it doesn't feel as debilitating than me sitting in a room in Nigeria, me sitting in a room in, you know, in Australia, suddenly having to fly to Italy for a tournament, me suddenly then fly to Hong Kong, you know, chasing points, chasing this dream, failing at chasing this dream, having only yourself to talk to and four walls, you know, 
that's the reality of what tennis is like for somebody like myself uh, and for a lot of us. And I think those sort of thing, those sort of situations are, you're not prepared. I was 18, 19, 20. I mean, I wasn't prepared for life, let alone to talk to myself about how I'm feeling about losing and not achieving the things that I can. Whereas in that situation at college, you're pretty much up on Monday morning at 6 a.m., whether it's weights, whether it's training, whether it's school, you're busy. You're you're into the next part of life. You're into some sort of entertainment. You're into some activity that's going to take your mind off it. Sitting there in a place trying to get better for six days with just yourself um, and and somebody else that you're practicing is is a pretty tough ask. So do you feel like the tour could somehow do a little bit of better job that I was just talking to a couple coaches where they really feel like the Italian Federation has an exceptional job of all the coaches coming together all the players coming together the US players were talking about that in particular they're all supporting each other do you think there's a way the tour can help those that are just starting out to maybe travel together somehow well it'd be nice um, how easy that would be I'm, I'm not sure you're obviously competing against these people obviously the US men and women have a very strong kind of nucleus of players at the moment and that's fantastic we, we weren't that lucky. Um, I had a lot of good friends from the Southern Hemisphere, actually South Africa and Australia, that, that were good to me, uh, that I did travel with. Also over here, Brian Shelton, obviously, great story with yeah. him and his son at the moment. Yeah. Um, Kenny Thorne was also, you know, co- college coach right now, was, was also super kind to me when I was traveling. Um, yes, I, I think so. I, I, I think there should be a mechanism for players to be able to go and talk to someone that's been through it as well. I do think that there should be. I know there's a mental program on the WTA. Right. I don't know how effective it is. I don't know how often these mentors are able to talk to players. And also, you know, again, I would say, and this might sound a bit harsh, but a mentor that's been fantastic isn't necessarily the mentor that a lot of players need. A lot of players need somebody that's been through the trenches and has right. been smacked around like a you. few. Yeah, <laughs> that's or like that, all of us, yeah, really. Like I mean, me if, too, what, yeah. what, if I was in that situation and I was picking up the phone to Johnny Mac, you'd be like, "What are you doing? Just win." <laughs> you yeah. know, I qualified and made semis of Wimbledon. Right. What what relevance does that kind of have? You, I do feel as though there are enough of us out there that would be willing to pick up the phone and go hey I, I hear you this is mm. this is not an easy time for you and this is what you could possibly do to kind of get you through this situation yeah I, I know the WTA also had like a mentorship program happening yep. I don't know if that's still going on because they asked me and yep. I mentored a couple of people which I thought was a fantastic idea yes, so that's absolutely. something absolutely I want to talk, you brought up mentality a little bit, because um, obviously you mentioned you coach Piznik till I also did a little work with Sakari and yep. Radu Kanu and Andy Murray, of course. Um, and you referenced Murray in particular, that those were some of the most amazing experiences that you had. As far as those experiences, what do you feel like you learned from that and, and the mentality of the desire that he has that so impressed you? Listen, I've learned something from everyone, and I think you know that's something I would like to sit on here and say thank you to them all I mean they've they've all taught me something Um, certainly Sylvia and Tina taught me a lot about how to 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 manage myself as a former player going out to be a coach what my expectations were of them to suddenly realize manage yourself how well obviously you're you're trying to be successful for yourself at the start you're like I need to do this for me and then it was very apparent to me that that was completely the wrong way I'm I I need to give to them this is not about me this is about them this is about the failings that I felt I had between my sort of time to transition onto the tour Um, what do I need to do better for them to be able to uh, 
to help them get to where they need to get to. So that was a that was a quick learning process for me and 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 one that thankfully I managed to make. But um, but also time the time that it took. I, I remember Sylvia. I tried to first practice I had with Sylvia. She literally hit ground strokes for 50 minutes. She hit volleys for two minutes. She hit one <laughs> overhead and served for about three minutes. And I was like, wow. I was like, is that how you practice every time? She goes, yeah, I don't need to volley. We never come in. And I was like, but you might need to come in. She was, <laughs> and she was like, no, I never need to come in. And I, But we slowly went through the process. It took nine months for her to feel confident enough in a match against Conchita Martinez to come in on a break point to hit a volley. That was something that she taught me. It was like, wow, you know, you go into a coaching situation, you think you can make an impact in the first three weeks. No, it takes a long time for these players to buy into to kind of where you can see them being. So, uh, so that was something from, from Andy's perspective. He always challenged me, but he always taught me something. Um, his desire on a daily basis is just phenomenal. Um, even now, uh, going back, helping him since April, he... Uh, he wants to he wants to dot every i and he wants to cross every t um and whether it's practice whether it's training whether it's anything it's competitive and it has to be done at the 100 percent of the best of everyone's ability and and there are no shortcuts you know yes he's a super talented tennis player but what he told me was and, and showed me was there are no shortcuts to to ultimate success it, it's it's just a volume of hard work smart work um and and you'll get there eventually do you feel like um like like Andy, Novak, Roger, Rafa, do you feel like that is what stands out to you as far as having that success over and over and over again? Because it's phenomenal staying at the top that long in their careers. Do you feel like it is those details, that intensity every single moment? Or do you think there's more as well? I think there's a little more, Jill. I, th- I think talent is a... Oh, talent is what, yeah. I think talent is a big part of it. Um, I do think that um that that sometimes is is a little bit um forgotten mm. um you know if andy didn't hit a double-handed backhand for 10 years the thing would still come out of his racket <laughs> right out the middle and it would go right to the intended target um it's it's one of those gifts that that those players have so talent is a big big part of it and it for me personally it's first and foremost mm. the hard work the mental toughness uh, the strategy, all of those things can be learned, but you can't learn talent. And, and part of their greatness has been the talent, but then obviously their dominance, longevity, um, has has come from everything else that they've had, the desire, the hard work. And, and I think that's also lost a little bit with, with Roger. You know, I was fortunate enough to be working with Maria Sakari out in Dubai in an off-season, which is where Roger trains, and watching him on a daily basis train away from the cameras and look at the hard work that he puts in and the intensity of those practices. I mean, there is not one minute of that practice that was lighthearted in everything had intensity, everything had a purpose. And I looked at that and I thought, yeah, that's why you've lasted as long as you've had have. And that's why you're as great as you are. I feel like that's what stands out to me because, I mean, you, you mentioned talent, which I think is hugely important, but there's so many talented players yes. out there. I mean, everyone yeah. can play well, but... I just think it's, I mean, we all think it's phenomenal that they've been at the top for so long. And so I, I think when you mentioned that Dubai, like that purpose, yes. that's, a, that's a word that keeps coming up with a lot of players. I talk to a lot of coaches, it's purpose. How, like, what are some tools that you can get to, because that's a whole different level of focus. Like as a successful coach, like how would you teach that? I would say that you, you will struggle to, teach the depth of desire that Andy and Roger and Novak and Rafa have 
So you think it's hard to teach? Like you think that's just innate in them? I I do. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people here that are making an awful lot of money doing seminars, telling people that they can teach them how to do it, and they're probably going to disagree with me. But I believe you get better at it, and you get to a higher level. But I do believe that that is an innate thing, or whether that's been installed in you by your parents from a very early age, or whichever way it is, I do believe it is there already, and therefore it kind of. Comes through your personality as you go through your career. When you want to achieve things, you're able to draw on that, and therefore it pushes you to be that person. As you said, there are many, many talented people out there, and why do they not learn it? They're not stupid people. These right. talented people—they're right. talented, right. but they don't learn it. And the reason that they don't learn it is because they can't. It doesn't come from within. And and so I do feel like yes. Andy and, and Rafa and Novak and Roger and Serena and Venus and all those people, they take it to the nth degree um, because that's how much drive they have to be the most successful, to be the greatest. But I do believe it is there. It's always there for yeah. them and it's always been there for them. And I'm curious, I mean, you obviously worked with Andy. You got to spend a lot of time with Judy, um, yep. his mother as well, and of course other amazing coaches on the tour. What, what did you learn from the other coaches? I mean, we, you know, as far as we heard from players, but other coaches that, that you felt like impacted you? I'm a big believer in collaborations. I mean, I, I don't believe I know it all, and I don't believe uh, anyone knows it all, to be honest. I, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that you should go out and ask people to look at your players. When I worked with Sylvia, when I worked with Tina, um, actually one of the people I managed to tap into at that time was Tony Roach, the great Australian player and coach. And... You know, I was very big on him just to come and to look at Sylvia's game, to, to give me some input into what he thought. Did he feel the same way that I did, that she could be top 30 in the world? Or was I dreaming? Was I feeling it? Was I misleading her? So he was somebody that I spoke to uh, for a while. Uh, when I worked with Andy, obviously I had Judy to lean on to uh, in terms of what he could and couldn't do. And, and to be honest, that's all I needed at that particular stage. And, and it was and it was fast with Andy as well, to be honest. I mean, it, it, it happened so fast. I mean, he was 300 in the world, and suddenly by the end of the year, he was just residing outside the world's top 60 there was a lot that's of incredible for you mark <laughs> no it was incredible for him he made me look he made me look very good Jill. and so yeah so i had her experience and 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 everything else in in that regard maria uh when i was asked to work with her the first time around in 2017 actually uh lovely french guy Emmanuel planck who's working with fiona ferrero right now i asked him at wimbledon to come and and take a look at maria's game mm. um and he was he's just one of the most generous people in the world came spent some time talked to a lot about um what you know she she could and couldn't do and and basically he came on the court chatted to maria and i just feel like it gives players a little bit of confidence that you know you're not just hearing my voice telling you what you should mm -hmm. do there's somebody else either backing it up or saying there's a different way of of doing things so um so i'm big on that esteban caril is another big friend of mine and a mm -hmm somebody who I really respect I took my two girls to Gijon in northern Spain to spend a week with Esteban and I learned a lot myself it was uh, you know fantastic what, what did you learn there I learned about structure structure of a lesson I learned about um I'm I'm probably a little bit more freewheeling okay. I, I I kind of go in a little bit to a session feeling like I know what I want to do but if I see something I'll 
kind of change 180 and and go and do something a little bit different to kind of fix the problem I saw that he was he was very structured in the way that he wants to do he had a, a beautiful mindset one of the things which I hope he doesn't mind me sharing is basically if you see a player having a problem with their backhand you know the next day you go on the court you don't go and fix the backhand because you know it's a problem you kind of work on their forehand because obviously mentally they probably get their mind off of it well or? there's pro they probably know their backhand's not wor working right. particularly well they're not stupid they they know that their backhand's not been great so if you go and work on their forehand the mind says oh maybe my backhand wasn't as bad as i thought it was so you're not implanting in your in their mind that there is a massive problem in terms of what you know the, they how they perceive themselves and i thought that was very clever and i loved the way that he worked and it helped a lot actually with maria uh, the little four weeks that I worked with her in 2017 um, and and just his overall um, holistic approach to tennis life the players development as human beings every single shot in the book is taken care of um, which sounds strange doesn't it it sounds like wow you know every every coach does that right not every coach does do that you know not every coach is out there feeding balls working on slice forehands and the footwork patterns back into the court uh one of the most important shots in tennis if you ask me the slice forehand on the defense it's not practiced as much as many people would would think it was so that that was something and and just lots of little tidbits in terms of how to get more rotation on your serve just just things that i i felt were was something that you could see that somebody that's had a volume of work in tennis um could 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 show others the small details you're talking about and you brought up the philosophical part of coaching um how important do you feel like it is for players to disconnect and be able to get their mind away from tennis at some point do you think that's valuable or is it individualistic i do think that everyone's holding so much judgment in their hands every single day with the telephone that um that we need to disconnect yeah i if I were coaching full-time, 100%, I would try and find a way for them to disconnect as much as they can. I, I appreciate there's lots of business on there. I appreciate there's family that you need to speak to. But there are ways to disconnect your apps from your phone for a large period of the day. And I do think that that is something that players fall into the trap of, of just reading, especially early on when things are going well. It's always great. It's always good news. But then, obviously, the negativity comes. So... Trying to, trying to get away from tennis is, and, and social media is absolutely, for me, paramount. It's, you know, tennis is an 11-month-a-year sport, plus obviously another month's worth of off-season training. But, uh, you know, not many sports are quite as consistent as ours is in terms of, like, being on it all the time and playing. So, therefore, you are holding this judgment and getting judged for virtually every single day of your year. That's a, that's a pretty rough spot to be for a lot of players. Not everyone's Roger and Rafa and Serena. So, I mean, you have kids. How did you do? How did you manage that with your kids? I mean, that's not that's challenging. It is challenging. We I, we weren't medieval. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we weren't draconian. Um, our kids got phones late. I mean, my, always the same. Probably in lots of families, the second child gets it a little bit earlier than the first one. You kind of like accept the fact that you can't kind of push as hard, but. I think our eldest, I think I'm right in saying, didn't get her first phone until she was 17. Mm -hmm. um, and that was because she had to travel. Um, so 
I think our second child got her first phone at 15, which was a bit young. And to be honest... Did the eldest child recognize that? Yes. Yeah, no. <laughs> but she's also had benefits in other, in, other, in other areas where the other one okay. doesn't get so many benefits. So it kind of swings and roundabouts okay. for them both. So they, 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 yeah, they, win, they win and they lose. Yeah. Um, we try and be as fair as possible. But yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult. And you kind of hope that your parenting skills across the board show them the way but there's inevitable times where you feel as though they've been on the phone too much and and they are using it too much and you kind of point it out you do sometimes take it away and leave it in the kitchen they don't take it to their room and all of that but I also feel as though at times that's a negative way of trying to impose restrictions on your kids because if you're doing it all the time the only time that that's not happening is when you're doing that. They're not making that choice themselves. You know, the greatest things that I hear from my kids is when they don't reply to us because they're in the States and we're in the UK and they're like, sorry, we, I just had to have my phone off for a few days. Nice. I, I just yeah. you're like, wow, you know, it, it did sink into yeah. some degree. So um, I don't think there's one size fits all when it comes to disconnecting. But I do think that you it is within us all and it should be for all of us to explain the perils of being connected the whole time I just want to talk about one more topic which I always found fascinating is self-belief like how you get the players to believe because there's so often you say oh you just you Mm. know you're good you just believe in yourself but I mean it's much more you can't just believe in yourself with a snap of a fingers like how do you dive into that for with a player and get them to the stage where they do believe in that that's yeah that's it Again, it's a another, no, it's a loaded question, <laughs> but it's another great question because I think that there's there's a myriad of thoughts out there. If you're if you're going to ask me at 51 years of age what I think now, as a for a tennis player to believe in themselves, I believe it is of paramount importance that you get them right technically. Technique for me overrides all of the other problems. Okay. Yes, you have to then get them over the hump of the mental problem that the technique has caused. But I was having a discussion with some people about Zverev's serve. I've been tracking it for a while now. I believe that the problem comes from technique and therefore it manifests itself mentally in some big moments. Now, we remember the big moments with Zverev because obviously like the US Open where he's serving for the match, you see the double faults. But the double faults are, are, are happening anyway. They're not just happening at those moments. So for me, when the pressure's not on and he's still serving doubles at 6-6, six, six mo- you know, there's something wrong with the motion. Um, and, I, and you know, my daughter over the summer, she came back from school and said, I'm really struggling with my serve. And she said, you know, everyone's saying, just get up there, my, you know, your serves looks good, you know, just hit it. And I was like, okay, well, let's, let's try Let's see what it is. And went out, tried to hit a few serves. I thought it looked okay, but she wasn't really making the serves. And I suddenly realized, okay, let's break this down. Let's go to the video. Let's slow it down. Yeah, we found a few things in her serve that weren't working particularly well, which is what was causing the problems. And it's very easy to sit there and go, that's a mental problem. You need to get. You need to work harder. Hit more serves. Just but believe. <laughs> just believe, Jill. Just believe. Just get I up mean. there and hit it. Actually, it's not. Right. You know. And I think there's a lot of people out there that are masking their own deficiencies by saying that, by work harder, by just believe. Because actually, it's your job as a coach. Number one is to mm. fix the problem. That is on you. Mm. 
them serving double faults or them missing forehands, that's on you. Mm. In my book, I, I would look at myself at the end of that and maybe that comes from my own insecurities, my own going back to where we started. I would be sitting as a coach on the side going, that's not on them. I, I, I'm not going to tell them that, that they're wrong. I'm going to tell them I'm sorry that I haven't been able to put them in a better place to make that shot. No, that's, I think that's fantastic advice. I'm, I mean, is it that deep level of trust? Because once you're sound technically, you do trust yourself a little bit more. Mark, hey, I appreciate it. This is such fantastic um, insight into, uh, into your experience. So we appreciate your time. Thank you for, for joining Thanks. us. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me.